The Bible reading today is from Matthew 4, starting at verse 1. It's on page 967 of your Bibles. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light, on those living in the land of the shadow of the death, of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name's Gordon. It's great to meet you. Uh, Happy New Year to those who are celebrating. Happy Lunar New Year. Um, I watched uh, this movie. It's come out recently on Amazon called Air, and... I'm not sure if you're interested. I don't know if you've seen this before or interested. It's basically about Nike, um, the huge American sports company. 
and how they signed Michael Jordan, you know, the greatest basketballer of all time. And look, this signing was, was massive. It was, it was huge. It made, basically, Nike the, the greatest sports company in the world, the number one sports company in the world. Um, and I don't know if you find this kind of stuff interesting. I'm into sport. I love Michael Jordan. Uh, I'm kind of interested also in like, how companies run and start. Um, so basically, Nike at the time was just a running shoe company. Um, the, the former CEO, Phil Knight, he started Nike by just selling Japanese um, running shoes from the back of his car. Uh, and it kind of like grew from there. It was a very risky startup, but it paid off. And then Nike kind of became this decent-sized running shoe company. But it didn't kind of infiltrate the other sports like it has now. Um, and Michael Jordan, at the time, he was just this rookie coming out of uh, college. No one knew how big he was going to become, you know, even bigger than the NBA. Except for one guy. Uh, he's the guy that played, played by Matt Damon. He's a guy called Sonny Vicaro, and he is hired by Nike to get them into basketball, into the basketball market. And Sonny, he, he knows how good Jordan's going to be. He wants Nike to go all in on this rookie, Jordan. Uh, but Phil Knight, he's the CEO, he's not sure. It's a really big risk, financial risk, to go all in on just one player, one rookie. And so the movie kind of moves on that tension. And what eventually convinces Phil Knight, CEO, to go all in on Michael Jordan was to go back to how the company all started, how it all began, the story of that. See, when he started Nike, when he was selling shoes from the back of his van, he had drafted 10, I guess, founding principles for this company. And these principles were all about taking risks, not being conservative, thinking outside the box and all that. And as he goes back to that story, he then decides, no, I'm going to go all in on this young rookie, Jordan. And then the rest, as you know, is history. And I'm sharing all that because my point is, sometimes you need to go back to how it all begins. See, Christianity... As, as Pippi's spotlight kind of brought through, right? I'm, by the way, I'm not going to do what she, <laughs> she did there. See, Christianity and what it's about, it's often misunderstood. You know, is it about a set of beliefs? Is it about this worldview? Is it about these traditions? Is it about a loving community? Is it about these good morals? What's Christianity? What's this Jesus movement thing all about? And we've, as you notice, we've, we're back in Matthew's gospel now. Uh, and we're going to spend the rest of the term as a church in Matthew. In our passage today, Matthew 4, is a glimpse into how it all began. This is, we're looking at, the early days of Jesus' ministry, his movement. And if you notice, at the start of the chapter, of chapter 4, it's just one person, Jesus. But by the end of the chapter, as Vanessa was reading that last verse, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, the region across the Jordan, followed him. That's a proper movement. That's a proper following. But what's it all about? I mean, how, how did it all happen? You know, was it just a really good marketing strategy? You know, what were his five Ps, right? Was it all luck? You know, did all the ducks kind of line up in the right time, right place for him? Now, this chapter, chapter 4 of Matthew, is going to help us see what this thing Jesus started is all about, this movement that became Christianity. 
Uh, if you're here exploring Christianity, look, I'm so glad that you're here. I really think that this passage will help you as you discover what it's all about. Uh, we're going to work through this passage systematically. It's broken up into a number of smaller sections, smaller stories, which we'll work through. And that's kind of typically how we do things here at St. Stephen's. Uh, but first, let's ask God for help again. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you seek a relationship with us through your son, Jesus. Uh, as we hear your word, open our hearts to him. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're at verse 1, uh, the first kind of subsection story. Um, so let me read from verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, and that, I guess, what follows is three big temptations from Satan, from the devil, uh, the great accuser, the great tempter from the beginning of the biblical story. I don't know about you, but as you're reading these temptations, what do you think? Like, it's a bit strange, aren't they? Not really what you expect. I mean, turning stones into bread, jumping off a, a, a temple and being saved by angels, bowing down, worshipping Satan to get the whole world. You know, what's this all about? Uh, one way that, you know, I've heard a lot, one way of looking at this that you might have heard is that these Three temptations, I guess, are like a template, a model for us as Christians as we fight off Satan and his temptations. And so the first temptation is, well, that's the idol of comfort. Jesus, he is denying his comfort. He doesn't satisfy his hunger. And we've got to follow the, the, how he does it. Uh, second temptation, well, that's kind of like the idol of security. And we've got to follow how Jesus fights against that. And the third temptation, well, that's the idol of power. And we've got to follow Jesus as he fights against that. We need to withstand these things like Jesus does. And look, these are three big idols for us as Christians. Comfort, security, power. You know, we love a comfortable life, don't we? We love being secure, being physically secure, emotionally secure, materially secure. And we love having power. And we often love these things more than we love God. And so, yes, the Bible does talk about these things. And the Bible does help us with our temptations against these three idols, but I'm not quite sure that this is what this passage is primarily about. See, when we read the Gospels like Matthew, the first question to ask isn't, what is this passage trying to tell me to do? The first question to ask is, what's this passage trying to tell me about the Lord Jesus? About Jesus. See, the focus of Matthew is primarily to tell us about Jesus. And so we've got to ask that question. What's this trying to tell us about Jesus? Well, back to verse 1. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. God wanted Jesus to go through these temptations. See, being tempted by Satan was a really important moment for Jesus, just like his baptism was in the, at the end of chapter 3, the previous story. It's almost like a test that he needed to pass. Then you might, you might be asking, what, what kind of test are we talking about? Well, let's look at verse 2. After, 40 days, uh, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, uh, if you know your Bibles, what's significant about the wilderness where Jesus is at and the number 40? Well, it was the number of years, 40 years, as you remember, that Israel had to wander around the wilderness because they didn't trust God. See, Israel failed 
the test. You see, Matthew is setting up this comparison between Israel and Jesus. In the Old Testament, God actually calls Israel his son. But here, in Matthew chapter 4, we see another son of God. Another son of God. Notice what Satan says in verse 3. If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. Did you see that? If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, why would it be wrong for Jesus to do that? You know, there's nothing in the Bible saying that you can't turn, turn stones into bread if you happen to have that ability. So why not? Jesus, he is hungry, right? It's because that's not the type of son God wanted Jesus to be. That's not the type of son God wanted Jesus to be. Jesus wasn't going to be the son of God who would feed himself with miraculous bread. He was going to be the son of God who would trust God and his word and who would ultimately give his body as bread to spiritually feed his people. See, at the cross, Jesus actually hears something very similar. People shouting to him, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Save yourself if you are the mighty Son of God. Now, that's not the Son of God that Jesus chooses and will be. You see that these temptations are actually more about what kind of son Jesus could be. So take a look at the second temptation. Now, what, again, we ask the question, what would be wrong with Jesus listening to Satan here. Satan's even quoting the, the Bible, Psalm 91, which says, basically, that God will protect all who uh, trust him, um, even if they're falling off a building. And so Jesus is taken up to the, the, the highest point of the temple. Satan says, jump down. Why doesn't Jesus just jump down and let Psalm 91, God's words, be fulfilled? Look at how uh, Jesus answers in verse 7. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. To the test. See, Israel, comparing Israel to Jesus, Israel always needed something, a sign, water from the rock, something to prove to them that God cared for them. And if you think about it, don't we do that as well? Don't we say, you know, how do I really know that God loves me? that he's for me. I can't see it in my life. I need something to happen, to show me. You know, we're just like Israel, aren't we? But not Jesus, not this Son of God. He doesn't need to test God's promise, this promise here of saving him by angels. He doesn't need things like that to trust God. And we'll go to the final temptation now, verse 9. All this I will give you, Satan says to Jesus. If you worship me, if you bow down and worship me. And again, just think about that offer. You know, if Satan just offered a little bit of what he's offering Jesus, you know, if he's just offered just a, a tenth, maybe 10% of what he's offering here to Jesus, to us, you know, if Satan said to you, look, I'll give you, I guess, a little kingdom, you know, maybe here in the North Shore, nice little kingdom for yourself, a nice house in the North Shore, your kids will go to a nice school, you'll get some good holidays together, you'll keep moving up in your career, you can have all of that, your little kingdom here, if you just bow down and worship me. It's quite tempting, isn't it? How many of us would kind of jump on that? But you see, Jesus stays faithful to God. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, if you look at the little footnote in your Bible, that's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. 
And did you notice, if you look at the little footnotes in the Bible, all of Jesus' responses to Satan, not just a quote from the Bible, but a quote from the same book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. I think this is really significant. See, Deuteronomy is one of the most important books in the Old Testament. It's basically a covenant between Israel and God. And it's a covenant that Israel breaks. Israel fails to keep God's word. They fail to trust God. But Jesus does not fail. And that is the point. See, there's only one man ever who faced Satan's temptations and remained faithful to God. There's only one man ever who is sinless. That's Jesus. This is really foundational as we go back to the beginning of this Jesus movement, Christianity. Christianity is not about us trying to defeat the devil. Christianity is not about us trying to remain as sinless as possible. Christianity is not about us trying to pass the test. There's no way any of us could have passed that test. You know, I, I wouldn't have even lasted 40 seconds without the bread, right? I often test God because I don't trust him enough. I'm drawn to Satan's offers for my own kingdom. We all fail this test. Christianity is not about us passing the test. It's about a sinless son of God who perfectly obeyed God in his life. And he also perfectly obeyed God unto death for sinners like us. Jesus passes the test that we fail. That's the first thing to see. The next little bit in Matthew 4 is quite easy to miss. Uh, in verses 12 to 17, you know, why, why does Matthew spend kind of these verses telling us about this place called Galilee, Capernaum, where Jesus lives, withdraws to, and begins, I guess, his preaching ministry? Like, what's all that about? Why is that important? Well, he actually gives us the answer in verses 14 to 16. This is a, a quote, this fulfilled, this, this action that Jesus takes. It fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 9. The land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a dawn, a light has dawned, sorry. See, Galilee was quite an interesting place for Jesus to choose where to begin. It was a very international place, you know, for a Jewish province. It had a large proportion of non-Jews. So perhaps, you know, it's showing that Jesus, his, his movement is going to be for people from all nations. But here, did you notice that Galilee is significant for something else? Do you notice it's called dark, a darkness? And so there's, there's one level to that, I guess, geographically, Galilee was in the ancient tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, which was the northern end of Israel. And so it was the first lands to be invaded during the exile by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. So on that level, this was, I guess, a dark place. People were living in darkness. They were craving light. I remember going to Janolan Caves, and you know, you go through the tour, right? And they, they want to show you how dark it gets inside, because there's no light that can actually get into the caves. And so they set you up, they turn off the lights, and even though it's like a tour and you can hear everyone, it's so dark. It's so dark, like I've never craved light so much in that moment, even just like the smallest light. So what's this light that is being craved here, that's, that's dawning in the darkness? Uh, in the original 
uh, Isaiah chapter 9, where this quote comes from, it goes on to mention a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom from God. And did you notice what Jesus preaches in verse 17? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What's the light that's dawning in the darkness? Is it not this kingdom that has now come? It's come near, this everlasting kingdom of heaven from God, this kingdom of light that overcomes the darkness. But what does it all mean? What's this kingdom of heaven? What's this darkness? Um, I'm relatively young, I guess, in, in ministry, but I guess over the different churches I've been to, I've seen a number of people come to seek to explore Christianity. And some of them come for answers. They come, I guess, for knowledge, to fix uh, incomplete worldview that they had. I guess they were intellectually dark, and they came to look for some sort of enlightenment. I've also seen some people come looking uh, for comfort and support. They were broken, life was broken, they were unwell, maybe sometimes unhealthy or sick. Uh, they were dark in that way, and they came looking for, I guess, the light of healing. And I've seen some who were lonely and they come. I guess there's a relational darkness that they're looking uh, for the light of community. And I guess they all come, as I've noticed, they all come to a point where they realize that what Christianity is actually offering is even bigger but completely different to what they came looking for in the first place. And usually that is the moment where they either keep going and push on or they turn around. Now don't get me wrong, Christianity can enlighten you. And don't get me wrong, Christianity can be a balm for your brokenness. And don't get me wrong, the church is a great blessing, a wonderful blessing for all who are lonely. But that's not what the kingdom of heaven is primarily about. See, Jesus began to preach repent. That means turn around, 180. Turn around. See, Jesus doesn't come to you and say, hey, you know, you're going slightly off track in life, you know, veering off a little bit from the straight. Let me kind of give you a nudge back in the right direction. No. Jesus doesn't come and say, hey, you're slowing down in life. Maybe you're out of fuel. You need, let me refuel you so that you can keep going the way you're going. No. Jesus doesn't come and say, hey, your car's completely broken. Let me fix it and you can keep going the way. No. Jesus says, you're going the wrong way. Your life is completely in the wrong direction. You need to turn around. Repent. See, darkness is not about not knowing enough. Darkness isn't about being lonely. Darkness isn't about having a broken life, a broken body. Darkness is primarily about walking away from God. Sin. Rejecting your Creator. And so Jesus begins his ministry by saying, you're living completely in the wrong direction. You need to turn around. You need to turn back to God. Why? Because the light has come. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, what does it all mean? I mean what does it mean that it's come near? And do you notice Matthew kind of just leaves it hanging? He just moves on to the next story. Why? Well, I think the next episode, the next story kind of shows us uh, this is a really great story. Um, Jesus calls his first disciples. Let me read a big chunk of this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. 
Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat, uh, the boat and their father, and followed him. What strikes you here in this story? Is it that Jesus chose fishermen? I mean, that is pretty striking. It shows that he doesn't just come for the elite, the the rich, or he's come for everyone. Or is it striking that Jesus then calls them to a higher calling, you know, to be fishers of people, as he says. I think that's pretty striking. You know, it shows that Jesus can, he can make a decent pun, can't he? He's got a sense of humor. But it also shows that he's about people, isn't he? He's about catching people. But isn't the most striking thing here that they follow him immediately? They leave everything behind and follow him immediately. They go all in. Look, I've always wondered why. You know, how, how were these disciples just able to leave everything behind? You know, have they already heard something from Jesus before? Was there like a previous encounter or meeting where everything was explained to them? You know, I wonder if Matthew deliberately chooses not to tell us. And I wonder if it's quite clever storytelling. You know, there's 24 more chapters ahead in Matthew that will tell us what Jesus teaches what he will do it will tell us what it looks like to follow jesus but here in this moment these four fishermen they have no idea they don't know any of that and i think that's the point they didn't need to they didn't need to know everything see in that moment they had everything they needed standing right there in front of them they had everything they needed to go all in And what was that? What was that that they had? It was Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Do you see that? They're so captivated. Not by something Jesus said. Not even by something Jesus did. But by him. By him. That's why they left everything. To follow him. And that's actually what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You don't need to know everything at first. You don't need to know how it fits together. You just need Jesus. You just need to be drawn to Jesus, to be compelled by him, captivated by him, by him calling you to be his disciple. That's how it all begins. Because when you find Jesus that captivating, then you'll trust him. And when you trust him, you'll be able to leave everything behind and go all in to following him. It all begins with Jesus. He is the starting point. If you want to know what Christianity is all about, it begins with Jesus. Christianity is nothing without Christ. And the kingdom of heaven is nothing without the king. Do you know why the kingdom of heaven has come near? Because the king has come. The king has come. Jesus is here. If you're someone who's still exploring Christianity, if you're still working it out, look, again, I'm I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad you're taking time to think through what I truly believe is the most important uh, decision in life. But the one thing I want you to take away is that it's all about Jesus. Christianity, primarily, at its core, is not about the morals, it's not about the community, it's not about the knowledge, it's about Jesus. And Jesus is calling you to follow him, 
to stop running away from God, to turn around and to follow him. It's, it's a big call. It's a really big call. And I hope that as you keep coming back each Sunday to hear from Matthew's gospel, that you'll see why doing that is really worth it. And as you hear from Matthew, the main question isn't to, to ask, you know, it's not about how much you learn, it's not how much you can do. The question is, how captivated are you by Jesus? How captivated are you by this Jesus? It all begins with Jesus. Now, if you already follow Jesus, can I ask you to do something a little bit strange? But I want you to think back to your moment, the moment where Jesus first called you to follow him, to leave everything behind to follow him. And I know many of you have left much behind to follow him. Family, reputation, opportunities. And no, no doubt, you know much more now about Jesus and what it means to follow him than you did back then. But can I ask you, I guess, a personal question? If you could go back then, knowing all that you know now, would you do it again? Would you do it all over again? Would you go all in with him again? I, I don't know what your answer is to that. Maybe it's a strong yes, and that's fantastic. But maybe there might be some hesitation. And look, if that's the case, I'm not here to make you feel guilty. The Christian walk isn't straightforward. Being a disciple is not always straightforward. I will see that in Matthew. But I wonder if we find it harder to leave everything behind because Jesus has become less captivating. Because we're less wowed by his sinlessness. We're less wowed by how he withstood those temptations from Satan. I wonder if it's because we start making Christianity about us and what we do rather than about Christ, about this sinless Son of God who was obedient unto death for us. So as we go through Matthew as a church, don't start with the question, what's this telling me to do? Start with the question, what's this telling me about my Lord Jesus Christ, my Saviour? who stayed on the cross for me, my Redeemer, who rose to life and grants me entry into his kingdom of heaven. It's all about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in the Lord Jesus you call those living in darkness and under the shadow of death to, fall, to follow you. You call us to repent and follow you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you passed the test that we failed that you are sinless, and yet you died in our place. And thank you that in your resurrection you have brought us into your kingdom of heaven by faith in you. Lord, by your Spirit, help us to trust you and to follow you. Amen.